Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. As, uh, as I'm sure most of you know by now, we have for some time been uh, preaching a series of messages on the Word of God. And each time we come to this series, we come from a different passage of Scripture and try to bring out another, uh, another thought, another truth uh, out of these passages of Scripture that teach us something from the Word of God. And we've been simply calling it some words about the Word and, and uh, just trying to walk our way through different passages of Scripture uh, that I personally feel like don't get preached on enough considering the value and uh, the, the vitality that comes in our lives from the Word of God. And so tonight we come here to Acts chapter number 17. If God allows us to have time we may move on to another passage but uh, there's so much here in Acts chapter number 17 that is uh, worth mentioning tonight. And before we preach them, uh, the majority of what I have to tell you verse number 11 this evening. I do want us to uh, walk our way through this passage of Scripture and understand the background a little bit uh, tonight uh, as the Lord will help us. When we come to verse number 1, of course, the Bible said that they are passing through an area known as as, uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Uh, The Bible says they passed through those two areas and now uh, they come to the city of Thessalonica, of course. Uh, This is the same city that uh, Paul in this uh, chapter is going to be used of God to found a church in. Uh, this is the same church that uh, that is, was, the, uh, was the church that received that first epistle, that first letter from the Apostle Paul that uh, we preached out of recently when we preached that series of messages on the Christian's comfort about the rapture of the church. This is the church that, remember I preached about how this was a, a church that was started in Acts 17 by Paul and it was a it was a young church and when they received that letter uh, they were just a year or two uh, removed from the dates of their conversion and the birth of their church and so Paul deals in that first letter to Thessalonica to them uh, on an elementary level on a on a level of uh, of bare basics in Bible doctrine and so we see that and we have uh, talked about this is that church the church Church at Thessalonica that uh, Paul used, was used of God to write two letters to well, First Thessalonians and Second uh, Thessalonians, and uh, we've talked about before in other messages about how this was a hard place for uh, Paul to labor in because of the opposition that this um, this city and uh, uh, those, especially those of the Jews in this city, as they pushed back against the gospel coming uh, to their town and to their uh, area and to their families. Amen. Uh, and I will say this, I, I, I feel for these Thessalonians. My heart breaks as I read these verses for them to think about a people to where God has sent uh, his choicest messenger to them. And they are hearing preaching from the Apostle Paul. They are hearing the word of God being brought to them as verse number two says, and Paul, could you imagine uh, being able to sit in this synagogue as Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, went into those from in the city of Thessalonica, into the synagogue of the Jews, and uh, he reasoned with them uh, uh, three Sabbaths in a row. Amen. Could you imagine what it would be like if I announced to you here at Beacon Baptist Church for the next three Sundays, our guest preacher is going to be none other than the Apostle Paul. 
and he was going to preach to us, and we were going to get to see it uh, under his preaching. Amen. Three Sabbath days. Amen. We understand that's not Sunday, that's Saturday. Amen. The Jews' Sabbath. But for three weeks in a row, he, the Bible says, he preached to them. He reasoned with them uh, out of the scriptures. Amen. Uh, with them out of the scriptures. Verse 2 says, he is drawing upon their logic. He is drawing upon their reason. Uh, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably the greatest preacher to ever live, one of the most brilliant minds God ever created. If you don't believe that, you hadn't spent a whole lot of time reading Paul's uh, writings. Amen. Uh, even the apostle Peter said, uh, brother Paul writes things that are hard to be understood. Even Peter said, Paul just writes some stuff that goes over my head. Paul, right? That's Peter. Amen. That's Jesus's, uh, well, that's Jesus's chief apostle. Amen. Uh, said that Paul just writes some stuff I scratch my head at and I, I don't even know what he's saying. I believe it. Amen. Uh, but I don't understand what he's saying. Amen. And I've been there a time or two in my life. And so this brilliant Bible mind and godly preacher, amen, is reasoning with them and appealing on their logic and teaching them the Word of God. Verse 3 says that he is opening and alleging uh, with the Scriptures, out of the Scriptures, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Not only was Paul preaching to them and uh, preaching the Bible to them, but Paul's chief subject in those three Sabbaths when he was there, when he came in as the guest preacher of the synagogue, he said, for the next three Sabbaths, I'm preaching to you on Christ. Amen. On uh, uh, Christ. And so that's what they heard. Verse 3 says this, and I'll uh, just state some of these things and move on. Notice what they say as he did when he preached Christ. He, first of all, the Bible says in verse 3, he opening, he says, and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. Look at that word opening there for a minute. That word opening simply means that uh, he opened to them a, uh, the sense of a thing in his reasoning, in his explanation. He is trying to pull the veil back on their understanding. He is taking the subject of Christ and he is opening it up to them in the way that he is preaching it. He is expounding. He is explaining the subject of Christ. He is dividing uh, the truth. It, it means to open by dividing. To uh, it, it carries the idea of dividing asunder. It means to open one's mind. It means to cause them to understand. It means to rouse in one the faculty of understanding or the desire for learning. What Paul here is doing, he, what he's doing is doing something that every preacher that communicates scriptural truth wants to do with their message. And by the God says here in under holy inspiration that Paul is doing exactly what every preacher wants to do. He's taking scriptural truth. He is opening it up to them where their minds were closed to it and where they didn't understand it. Now he is opening it up in a way to where they can understand it and not just that, but they desire to learn it. He, there, there is an interest here uh, that is being described as he is opening the scriptures to them. It is so open and their mind is being so uh, drawn to a truth that they've never heard before and they've never understood before. Never the light bulb, if you will, has never uh, come on to them in this way before. Their mind has not been, uh, has not uh, had these thoughts arise up in it before and it's caused them to desire to hear more. He opened the subject of Christ to them. It was closed and now Paul is being used in the hand of God as the one that opens up the subject of Christ to them. Amen. And what a joy and a privilege to know uh, this evening that that does not have to just stop with the Apostle Paul. We've already mentioned it last Wednesday night. We had a seminar on Saturday. We had preaching all day Sunday from Dr. Wood that God has given us the privilege to be able to take the subject of Christ and do exactly the same thing. Open it up to a world that does not understand who Jesus is and to be able to tell them from the scriptures who Jesus is. He 
is the one that loved them. He's the one that died for them. He's the only one that can save them. And he is the one that if they would call upon him in faith believing, he would not turn them away, but would receive them into his family and into his heaven. Amen. Opening the subject of Christ. But then the Bible said he also did something else. He was alleging that Christ must needs had have suffered. Now when the Bible says that he alleges, it's not in the sense that we normally would say, well, someone alleges this, and it gives, a, when we say that someone is, uh, and this is uh, something that someone allegedly did, it's something that we say is uh, something that is doubtful or something that has doubt associated with it. But if you read this in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary or um, even in a Strong's Concordance, that's not uh, the idea uh, that's given here. Uh, Webster said this, that the word means to declare, to affirm, to assist, or excuse me, to assert to pronounce with positiveness, to produce as an argument, to produce as a plea. It means, uh, literally it means to take the subject that he opened and to lay it beside of them. That's what the Greek word carries along with it. Not only is he preaching this with, a, with affirmation and, affirm it, and affirming this to them and with positivity, he is not just saying that it is possible that Jesus is the Christ he is saying that Jesus, Jesus that died on the cross not too long ago in this time, that one that was hung on a Roman cross, he was the Christ. He was that Messiah that they were looking for and wanting and waiting for. That was him, and they missed him. He is saying it with all positivity. That is him. And what the Greek word implies and adds to this, as he takes that truth, this is who he is, and he lays it next to them. He takes the truth of who Jesus is and sets it near them to where they can reach and grab it if they want to. He is offering it to them. He is setting it before them. Amen. He is depositing it to them. He is committing it to them for keeping. He is entrusting that truth with them and trusting that they will do what is right by the truth that he gives. Now I'll say this. When it comes to this word alleging here, what Paul is doing is all that Paul can do. Paul cannot make them believe. Paul cannot make them except Christ. When it comes to you and I as a gospel witness, all we can do is tell the truth of God positively with affirmation. This is the truth of God, but it is up to you what you want to do with it. Set it before those that need it. Place it into their trust and trust them to do what is necessary with the truth. Amen. As Brother Wood said, we're not trying to trick people into getting saved. We're not trying to coerce and, and use and, and use psychology to make people give uh, their heart to Christ. That's not, that's not true salvation. Amen. That's just, just us making them uh, twice more fit uh, to go to hell than they were before. Amen. But we, we are entrusting people with the truth that Jesus is who he said he is. Here in this passage of scripture, that's what Paul does. The subject of his message is that Christ, he Affirms them who Christ is and says, Amen. We know that he's telling them who Christ is. The last part of verse 3 says, And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. He tells them who Christ is and he tells them that what Christ did was a necessity, that Christ must needs have suffered. Amen. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Luke chapter number 24, Luke 24, 26, Luke 24, 46, Luke 24, 26 and 46. Both of those verses um, talk about uh, how, uh, uh, how Jesus much needs have suffered. Apparently that was a very popular subject of a message in the early church. The suffering of Christ was necessary. 
the death of Christ was necessary. His suffering, his resurrection was necessary. The reason that he can be the Christ is because of his death, his suffering, his resurrection. Amen. It was necessary for the fulfillment of the scriptures. It was necessary for the redemption of the soul. That is their message. And the Bible said, as I like verse number four, the Bible said when that happens, some of them believed. Amen. Aren't you thankful that when we do that, there'll be some that'll believe. Amen. Paul preached and some believe. I get encouragement from that. Amen. And reaching the world with the gospel because the best preacher outside of the Lord Jesus Christ preached to them on the greatest subject. Amen. Probably the most qualified person outside of Jesus himself to preach on the subject of Christ. Amen. The one that God appeared to him. Amen. And saved him. Did a dramatic move of the heavens and showed himself in resurrected glory just to get Paul in. And that's the subject he's preaching on. And that's the God he's preaching on. And even still only some believed. What an encouragement that is to us. They said some of them believed. Praise the Lord. Thank God for that. And the Bible said they consorted with Paul and Silas. In other words, uh, they joined up with them. They united with them. They began to follow Paul and follow Silas. Amen. And they began to uh, make themselves a legion with their ministry. And then the Bible says, and of uh, the devout Greeks, these are, these Greeks are, um, Gentiles that are proselytes of the Jewish religion. They are converts of the Jewish religion. They are they're, they're Gentiles that are following after Judaism. Amen. You think about what the Bible is saying here about these Greeks. These, these Greeks, the Bible uses that term Greek to refer to Gentiles, but then oftentimes as here in our text to refer to Gentiles who were a part, they were in the synagogue, they were part of the Jewish religion. Here you are, here, here they are, uh, Gentiles that are not a part of Judaism. Here they are, Gentiles that very well might have been brought up in other kind of pagan religions, and they convert to Judaism as their religion. But that still wasn't good enough. Brother Brandon, these folks were already converts. They just converted to the wrong thing. I'm, I, I think about all of these celebrities and, uh, I, you know, you think about men like Muhammad Ali said he was raised in a Christian home. Men like Michael Jackson raised in, raised in a, well, uh, I guess a Jehovah's Witness home. He converted and became a Jehovah's Witness and then became a Muslim toward the end of his life. Muhammad Ali uh, became part of uh, the nation of Islam and followed uh, some variations of Muslim teachings, changed his name to a Muslim name. And these were men that were known for their conversions. But the problem is, unless they gave their heart and converted to the true religion, unless they converted to the tr to true Christianity, they were converts but they converted to the wrong thing and both men would be in hell if they haven't given their hearts to Jesus before they left this world. You can be a convert to anything you want to believe. Amen. You can pursue any kind of religion. These people were already converts. But in this moment, aren't you glad they converted to the right message? Amen. They converted to the right uh, belief system. Amen. Because they trusted in Christ. They believed the message of the gospel. They were twice converts to never be a convert again. Amen. Here we find that the Greeks, devout Greeks, believed. Amen. Of a great multitude of those. And then of the chief women, not a few, many would say that these uh, chief women are uh, the wives of some of the most principal, <coughs> principal men of the city. Some of the who's who in Thessalonica. Uh, these uh, very well <coughs> could be their wives or have some kind of connection, some kind of uh, family connection that gave them a great influence and a position of rank in this city. They were called chief women. And the Bible says of those, not a few. Aren't you glad the gospel's not just for men? Aren't you glad the gospel's for men, women, amen, Jew and Gentile? Paul here is being used of God to preach a message in this town, to give them the message of Christ. And he is seeing conversions, amen. He's seeing people bound by religion come to have faith in the Son of God, saving faith in the Son of God. Jew, Gentile, men, women, amen, are all coming to Christ, amen. 
Amen. And the Bible said, verse 5, and the verses that follow, amen, that it made, it made those in Thessalonica upset. They were moved with envy. They didn't like the fact that Paul was accumulating disciples from their synagogue. He was accumulating uh, uh, followers from their synagogues. More than that, that the Christ that they were preaching against, they are being saved by, and they are now following by uh, faith. Amen. And he's pulling people out of their synagogues as they have given their heart to Jesus, and they're turning their back on false religion. Amen. And the Bible says that uh, to stop these preachers, they, uh, notice verse 5, they took unto them uh, uh, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. That, that, that word baser sort, you could essentially put it, I, I hope we all understand this language, but when it talks about these men being of a baser sort, pretty much what they're talking about is these men are just absolute lowlifes. These men are just, uh, these individuals are lowlifes. These are people that contribute little value to the world that they live in, to the people that they're around. Uh, they're not interested in helping anybody. These men are takers. They're not givers. Amen. They don't, they don't uh, come in trying to be a blessing. They come in to see what they can give. And I don't, I don't really, I can't really get into all that that word elude means. I thank God for the Spirit of God and how He translates the word of God, because when you study behind everything that is behind this word as it is in our New Testament, there's some very vile things that is coming up that's being, that's, that is underneath just the word lewd and what it, what it means. This, again, I'm not going to get graphic with this, but this word lewd, it means evil. It means hurtful. It means to be an individual that defers, and this is literally what the Greek language would state, for, to defer, to move away from essential character. Not just, uh, not just extreme character or, or, or godly character, but just essential character. These are characterless men. These are individuals that have no character at all, have no rules, no regulation to their life. All they do is, is a, is a full-out uh, desire and onslaught to find pleasure in life and, the, and pleasure in the vilest of things. Lewd means to be vile, to, uh, to be uh, wicked, to be evil. Uh, and it literally carries, um, it carries an idea here of, uh, of um, being, uh, giving themselves to unlawful, un uh, unlawful indulgence in lust. It literally means that these men were addicted to fornication and addicted to adultery. As wicked as you could get out there, that's what these men were. And the religious crowd chose to align themselves with these men because Christ was being preached, and they did not like it. It has been said before, Brother Lewis has mentioned it preaching uh, often his testimony about how God saved him out of religion and put him in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no telling what will make sense if all you have is religion and all you base your life on is religion. These were people that were supposed to be religious and their comrades in their common purpose of shutting off the gospel was those that were as vile and wicked and immoral as they could be. You would not expect the preacher, amen, to try to lock arms in, a, in, his, uh, in his spiritual efforts with a fornicator. You wouldn't expect that with an adulterer, with someone addicted to wickedness. But that's what they're doing because religion without Christ and absolute rebellion against God have the same end goal, have the same purpose. They're not interested in Christ. Religion's not interested in Jesus. Religion is interested in you following rules and writs, interested in you following uh, their uh, line of thinking and their particular ways of doing things, not concerning about Christ. And rebellion, ungodliness, and hatred of God does not want the name of Christ mentioned. They have the same goal here in the text. 
The Bible said that they moved with envy. They took unto them certain lewd fellows of a baser sort and gathered a company and assaulted the house of Jason. They are, they are physically, violently assaulting this Christian and sought to bring him out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also to me. And again, I'm making my way toward verse 11, just wanting us to understand the context. But this verse, verse the last part of verse number 6 is one of the most convicting, one of the most stirring, one of the most motive, to me motivating statements in all of the Word of God. This was given to the Christians as a charge against them. In other words, when he says these that have turned the world upside down, you know when they make that statement, you know what is in the works? Do you know what these, um, the, these uh, Jewish uh, rulers and these uh, religious folks, do you know what they're planning? Why did they call the certain lewd fellows? Why did they align themselves with them, these men of the baser sort? Because they need what these men are good at. In this moment, what are these men good at? These men are good at, at fighting and causing a fuss and causing a ruckus and creating an uproar. That's what they want. They want the entire city to be in an uproar. And they're stirring this up. They're stirring the people. They're enraging them. They're putting them in a frenzy. And by the way, that's not hard to do. You find one person that is enraged and you let them talk to somebody else, and guess what? Now that person's starting to feel that way. Now that person's starting to get upset. That's why I try not to hang around negative people. It's contagious. That's why I try not to hang around angry people. It's contagious. Here, by the way, that's one of the reasons why churches split up as much as they do. You have one person get disgruntled, and they go to another person, and they have their side of the story, and nobody cares about the preacher's side of the story. Nobody cares about the other church member's side of the story. This side of the story's fun. This side of the story stirs my emotions, gets me upset, gets me ready to take up arms. Nobody's interested in taking up arms for the gospel. Amen. Nobody's interested in being enraged, amen, to go, hey, I could use a better word than that, but being stirred up to go soul winning or to stir it up to, hey, amen, uh, to shout in church or praise God or, hey, amen, do whatever it is that we can po positively charge people to do. Yeah. But when it comes to the negative, oh, how we love to hear that gossip, that, that, that enraging talk here. They use these individuals to go into this town to cause a ruckus, to cause a fuss, to cause an uproar. And then they look at the Christians and say, those are the ones that have turned this city upside down. Everywhere they go, they're disrupting things. Everywhere they go, they come into synagogues like ours. They come into church, if you will. The, 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 the rulers here, the, the Jews are essentially looking at men like Paul, and they're accusing them of being troublemakers, causing dissension in their churches, if I could put it that way. Every time they come in here in the synagogue, they start talking about Jesus, and it messes everything up we're doing. They're not just doing it in Thessalonica. They're doing it in the whole world. They're, they're getting things stirred up and then wanting to put the blame on the Christians just because they came in to preach about Jesus. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither. They've turned the, the other cities upside down. Everywhere they go, they're causing a problem. And now here they are in our city, in our community, in our synagogue, in our house of worship, and we are not going to let them do it here. That's what they're doing. Do y'all see that here in the text? Verse number 7. Notice what they, they, they accuse Jason of crimes here in the text. The Bible said, whom Jason hath received. If you study out what is going on in this particular period of time, they have a law to where if someone is known for being seditious, causing issues, being a, being a troublemaker, and you receive them in your home, or you receive them into your family, or you receive them into your, just into, in, into your life, 
It, 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 ha it has punishment with it. It is a crime that, uh, that you must uh, face punishment for. And here they're saying, these men, these Christians, Paul and those that are with him, they are troublemakers, and they're stirring up trouble in our town. And Jason has received these seditious men into his home. He has received them into his life. He has received them. And these all, notice this, the word all there, do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, and saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Amen. That word Christ does carry the idea that he is the king. He is the ruler. He is the anointed one. He has, he has a higher anointing than any Caesar ever had. And that's what they come in and preach. And now they say, hey, they're preaching another kingdom other than Caesar. And that is seditious in Rome and in the provinces of Rome here in Thessalonica. I said, we shouldn't, they shouldn't do that. The Bible says, verse 8, they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason of the other, they let them go. That taken security of them, most Bible commentators and scholars will tell you they don't really understand what that means. But chances are what it means is, is they gave them some kind of security money. They paid some kind of bond. They did something, whether it was monetary or not, that would, that would allow these religious individuals to be satisfied to let them go as whatever form of punishment they said they believed they deserved. So here something is done, satisfies this crowd, satisfies their religious leaders, and they let them go. Verse 10 says, and the brethren immediately, again, I don't know if y'all remember the message from recently that I preached, but just the idea of continuing, I'm amazed here in verse number 10, the Bible says, and the brethren immediately. I don't know about you, but I, I think a whole lot of us believers, if we had something that bad happen to us, we might would be we, we might convince ourselves that we deserve a couple of days off from uh, ministry endeavors. You, you start, you have people assault you and beat up on you and violently attack you and try to put you under some kind of legal punishment for something that's not even a crime. You might say, "Well, I'm going to give myself a break for just a few minutes." The Bible here says the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas, sent away their men of God by nine unto Berea. They're trying to take care of them. Who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And verse 11 is the point I'll make tonight and will be done. Verse 11, these, <clears throat> those in Berea. This area that they have arrived to after the, all of these events have transpired, after they've went in, they've, uh, they've preached Christ in the synagogues for three Sabbath days. They face the wrath of the religious uh, leaders and the stirring up of the people and the assault and all of these things that happen. The Bible said that Paul and Silas after that went, in, went, into, Berea, went to Berea and went into the synagogue of the Jews, went to the same place in a different town that they just went into and had all those problems. They did not let a little bit of persecution cause them to quit. They did not let a bad day or a hard time cause them to quit, to give up, or even to slow down. The Bible said as soon as they left, immediately they went to Berea and continued forth in the work of God. Now, the first time in this chapter we find them going into a synagogue of the Jews, they are rejected. But then the second time they go into a synagogue of the Jews, they are not rejected, but, th but they are received more than them personally being received. The message that they're preaching is being received by many there in Berea. And the Bible says that these, those Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Can I encourage you this evening to be a Berean-like believer? God wants us to be Bereans.
The Bible here says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica, even those that received the Word of God. The Bible says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So I want to submit to your heart tonight this, this truth that when it comes to the Word of God, the Word of God allows you and I to be spiritually and biblically noble. You say, preacher, what does that mean to me? Notice, first of all, we see in verse number 11. By the way, I think Acts 17, 11 should be a very important verse in all of our lives. If you can commit it to memory, commit it to memory. At least the principle of it, the truth of it, amen, that there is nobility that comes when we search the Scriptures, amen, receive the Word and search the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. You say, preacher, before I say that, let's, let's first of all notice a characteristic here. Notice the word noble. The characteristic given to these Bereans is they were more noble. <coughs> in other words, those that received the truth in Thessalonica, they were noble. They had that characteristic too. But these Bereans were more noble because of what they do. This characteristic, you say, preacher, what does it mean to be noble? It literally means to be great. It means to be elevated. It means to be dignified. It means to be above everything that can dishonor reputation. It literally carries the idea of being a part of a normal family. It means to be honorable. It means to be high in rank. If I can simply put it this way, it means that they were above the norm. These were not your average Christians. These were, by the way, those in Thessalonica, they got saved. They became Christians. But that's all we know about those in Thessalonica up to this point in Acts chapter number 17. Can I say that there are multitudes of Christians in our world today that is as far as they ever go. They're saved. There is, there is, uh, there is some honor to that. There is some nobility to that. There's something for you to look at them and say, good job. I'm glad you're saved. I'm thankful you gave your heart to Jesus. That is a wonderful thing. There's nobility in that. That's a great characteristic to have. They accepted Christ. That's not something for us to look down on. That's not for us. That's not something for you and I uh, to, uh, to uh, be discontent with. No, thank God they're saved. Amen. If they die, they're going to heaven. But so many people stop with just being saved. Amen. So many people stop and they never go any further. These in Berea, they went further. They were above the norm. They weren't just a normal Christian. They got saved and then did whatever they wanted to do. And now they just have their ticket to heaven and that's okay. But they were above the norm. They were more noble. We see the characteristic, but then let me say this. We see the cause. Why are they said to be more noble? Why are they said to be above the norm? The, the, the cause is the fact. Look at the Bible here. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. <coughs> in that they, look at this first, received the word. They received the word. It means they take, took it into their hands. They admitted it into their life. They gave it, they granted access to it in their life. They kindly welcomed God's word into their heart, into their mind, into uh, their existence. They, uh, they are hospitable toward the things of God. They're welcoming of it. They're thankful. They receive it. But the Bible said they received the word. Notice how they received the word. They received the word with all readiness of mind. Let me ask you this evening, are you, do you have, when it comes to your Bible reading, when it comes to your time of study, if you have that, I hope you do. When it comes to you being in, you coming in on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock and sitting in a Sunday school class, when it comes in on Sunday night or Sunday morning at 11, Sunday night at 6, Wednesday night at 7, and let me ask you this, tonight, when you came in here tonight, did you just come in, find a place, sit on your blessed assurance and say, well, I'm here on Wednesday night? Or did you come in with a ready mind? Not just a ready mind, but all readiness of mind. Preacher, what does it mean to have a ready mind? It, came, it means that they came uh, to when they heard Paul, they heard the Word of God, and they received it, they granted access to their life, and they did it with great zeal. 
They did it with great eagerness. They did it with great willingness. When was the last time you came into church and you said, God, you don't have to say preacher, I'm not interested in that. But then was the last time you came to church and said, God, I am eager to receive your word. Not just to hear preaching, not just to watch a preacher. You'd be surprised how many people say, man, I love this preacher or that preacher. And the reason is they enjoy watching that person as entertainment and not listening to that man of God give them truth from the scriptures. There's a lot of preachers that are entertaining. Amen. And I'm not saying they're not giving biblical truth, but they are entertaining. I will say this, you have someone that has a little bit of pep in their step, a little bit of volume to their voice, a little bit of personality comes across the pulpit, you will find that the majority of those kind of preachers are more popular than those that simply give truth. The man with the golden tongue will be received a whole lot more than the guy that stutters and stammers, but he still gives a great message. I hate to say this, but there was even, in my opinion, even some of that in some of the preacher's meetings that I go to. One pastor gets up, and he has a certain style that puts him more quiet or whatever, and uh, very few amens. But then you have somebody like me get up, or somebody like Brother Rogerson get up, or somebody like Brother Barry Rackley get up, has a little bit of oomph to what they're saying, and you get a few more amens. It's not that the message we preach is any better. It's just there's a little bit more entertaining entertainment value than that. If all you get out of preaching is the entertainment value, you haven't got much. Because this is probably the least entertaining thing you can have in your life. In a day where entertainment and amusement is available on every hand, if, if entertainment's all you come to church for, you won't be in church long. But if you are like these Bereans that have some nobility to you, that are able to be a, a above the norm kind of Christian, you're saved. But when you come to the house of God, it's not, well, I want to I see if the preacher is going to run the aisle. I want to see if he's going to jump over a pew. I want to see uh, the choir get up and, and sing uh, the rafters down or whatever the case may be. If it goes beyond that, and you tell God before you ever get here, God, I pray, not, not as some Baptists do, I pray we have one of them services where the preacher don't even get to preach. Amen. You come in saying, God, I pray. That when, 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 when we come in, our preacher gets to preach, and you help him preach the Bible, and God, <clears throat> as the Bible's, or our teacher, as he teaches the Bible, and as the Bible's opened up, God, speak to me. God, let me know what your word says to me, so I can very quickly and very readily take it, accept it, welcome it in my life, put it in a place in my life. God, I do it eagerly. I do it willingly. That's what I want when I come to church. That's what these Christians wanted. God said they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were the above the norm kind of Christian because they received the Word of God. They did it with all readiness of mind. And then notice this. The Bible says here, not only the characteristic, the cause, but notice this consideration. They received the Word of God. They did it with all readiness of mind. But then notice this, the, the consideration here. They searched the Scriptures. Not only did they search the Scriptures, but they searched them daily. To search the Scriptures here means that they, they came to the Bible, and as they read, they began to make estimations. As they read, they began to make determinations. They began to sift through the Word of God, study the Bible. They began to examine it closely. They came to, they came to have a close eye, uh, almost to scrutinize, but not in a negative sense. Uh, they scanned it. They examined it. They came to it with questions, and they sought it for answers. They were inquisitive. They were curious. They were, if I can say this, they came to the Bible as thinkers. Not just readers, but thinkers. The Bible says here that they received the Word, but too many of us, we stop, we stop with just being Bible readers. When was the last time you were a Bible searcher? 
When was the last time you studied the Bible? You examined the Bible. You say, preacher, I just don't know a lot about the Bible. It's, could, it, could it be that it's not because of the, uh, the church experience you've had in your life or the preaching you've sat under, but it's just because you haven't been a Berean believer? You haven't searched the Scriptures? You know, and I found this interesting. I'm going to have to close here. But I found this interesting this, this afternoon as I was studying some of these things again and trying to make sure I had everything ready for tonight. The word here where the Bible said they searched the Scriptures, and of course we see they did it daily. They didn't just do it once a week. They did it every day. But the Bible, when the Bible says they searched the Scriptures, one of the definitions I found as I reviewed this word again, it carries the idea of forensics. Do you all know what forensics is? I, you should. If, if you've lived in Lexington any time in the last 30 or 40 years, you should know what forensics are. The, our community has made history. If the, our county has made history in the, in the field of forensic uh, police work. I, I'm sure most of y'all remember uh, the case of Sherry Smith back in the 80s and the Larry Jean Bell and how he murdered her. And they used forensics to attach him to a crime there was really no evidence for. And that happened here in Lexington to where up until 2004, I mean right down the road on Platt Springs Road is, is where all of that took place. Just right here. The last sheriff that was sheriff of this county was, was, was tasked with that. And I couldn't imagine being tasked with that. Taking little fibers and hairs or, or a drop of saliva or a drop of blood and being able to put pieces together to, to bring people to justice. If it wasn't for forensics, there'd probably be a lot of very bad people walking the streets in many, many years gone by. I'm thankful for that in our police force and the advancements they have. But what they do when they go to a crime scene and they look at it, I mean, you think about some of the stuff they find. They find hairs that are almost not even visible to the naked eye. And then they take a microscope and put that little piece of a hair or a drop of saliva or, or, or a blood that's been washed away and they still take residue from it and they put it under a microscope or they put it in something and extract DNA from it. And little, little pieces of things that are not even, a, not a, you have to, use, uh, have to use technology to even see and sift apart. They take those things from a crime scene that you'd walk in, and many people are so sophisticated, there doesn't look like anything bad happened here. There doesn't look like there was ever a crime that happened. But these trained forensic uh, policemen and trained forensic scientists, they can go to those crime scenes and even look at the invisible and bring them to light and be able to, get to, to, to bring someone to justice from it. And do you realize that is a word that's associated with what it means to really search the Scriptures? Don't just give it a passing glance. If, that, if this Bible here, if the King James Bible is God's Word and God's the one that wrote the book, don't you think if we would dig into this book we would find some things that, that have to, would allow us to tap into the mind of God for us? I do believe that it is the simple truth. Y'all have heard me say this before. It is the simple truths of Scripture that will save your soul. It's the simple truths of Scripture that will change your life. But I believe that from the Word of God we realize that it's not God's will for us to just always take a passing glance at His Word. If God wrote the book, He wants us to communicate and come to the Scriptures realizing that it was God that authored that book. God did it. I've read many books in my life. I, this afternoon, I had uh, there was some books for me that got that I bought and they had them delivered to the church. Uh, uh, people, had, somebody had them late, waiting waiting here for me. And I think Mr. Nita or somebody brought them in and uh, set them on my desk. I had bro Brother Brandon help me open them up, and I've got some good books. I've got a book. I've got a commentary in there, completing a set I have from John Phillips. That's a man. I'm telling you, that's a great commentary set. Amen. John, that's the whole reason I I have five books. I bought all five of them, so I, they were selling it as a set. And I want that one book, so that I got five, because I wanted that one for a good price. But the ones I got, 
Y'all may recognize these names. I got a book. I mentioned John Phillips. I got a book by Dr. Curtis Hudson on salvation, the doctrine of salvation. I got a book by C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, all sitting on the desk. Those are good books. Those are good books. They're about the Bible. But even though they're good books about the Bible, they're not the Bible. Curtis Hudson wrote that book. Charles, Charles Spurgeon wrote that book. John Phillips wrote that book. Three tremendous men of God, but none, none of the three are God. They didn't write. God, God wrote only, God wrote only one volume and 66 books in one volume. And if you've got a King James Bible, you've got it. Amen. God says you and I through the Word of God can be in God's eyes a noble people, an honorable people above the norm. You say, preacher, I want more out of my Christian life. I want to grow in my faith. I want to go to the next level uh, of spirituality and of, of, of Christian growth. I want to go to that next level. I don't want to be a run-of-the-mill Christian. I want to be above the norm. There's only one way you'll ever get it. You've got to have your life in this book. The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind. When they came to it, they were ready for it. They were eager about it. They were willing to receive it in their lives. And they searched. They examined. They viewed this as God's Word and they looked, they looked everywhere they could and they searched the Scriptures daily to see that the things were so. What things? The things that Paul preached. The things that were preached to them. God wants you to be an examiner. God wants you to be a forensic sci scientist of God's Word so that if somebody preaches error to you, you'll be able to identify it. Listen to me. I thank God for your good attendance tonight. Listen to me preach. I've had, I've had a wonderful time preaching to you tonight. I enjoyed Monday, but I've enjoyed tonight so much more. I'll say this, I love pre I love your attention. I thank God for it. But I'm telling I'm telling you tonight, you do not now don't take this wrong. When I'm preaching, I hope you'll pay attention and you'll listen. But don't listen to me because I'm preaching. Don't listen to me because I'm the one preaching to you or some other preacher. You don't have to listen to a word a preacher says. But if that preacher's preaching what God says, you better learn you better turn your ears up to what a preacher's saying is from God. You will never offend me by saying, Preacher, I heard you preach something. I just don't know. I, I found this verse, and I just don't know if that's right. You won't offend me by coming up to me and showing me a verse out of Scripture. You won't hurt my feelings. Number one, I'll be excited that I have a Berean believer in my church. But then number two, if I'm in error, you're giving me the opportunity, number one, to get it right. Number two, to understand the Bible more clearly. And number three, to stand up before all of you and apologize for preaching something that was not scriptural, even if it was in the best of intentions. You won't offend me by doing that. But I do hope tonight we have some Berean believers. The Word of God can give us nobility that no other book can give. And I hope the message is a blessing. I hope you'll do what God said in His Word. Lay every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm done. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com.